Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we're in Deuteronomy 5 tonight. We uh, are getting into the teaching of the law. Uh, Moses has given his opening salvo in Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 4, reminding the new generation of what God has done for them up to this point. And it occurred to me, this is the fifth of the books of the Torah. Like we're almost done with like the biggest chunk of this new, this Old Testament kind of Bible study going all the way through. And it, and it occurred to me that Deuteronomy is the conclusion of those five books. And chapters one through four really make that point. Everything in Genesis all the way through chapter four was the beginning of the story. And now the reason for that story is the law that we get. So tonight we're going to be in the Ten Commandments. We're reviewing it. If you want to go back to Exodus 20, I took a spin on the Ten Commandments that I'll remind you of tonight. But at the same token, you want to say, okay, what's Moses saying this time on the second teaching of the law, which is the meaning of the word Deuteronomy, second law. Verse 1, and Moses called all Israel, and he said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make his covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. And I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up to the mountain. So Moses starts out and again, he's still kind of, it's this last bit where he's kind of saying, here's what happened. They got the law from God directly. And Moses is reminding them that they heard it face to face out of the fire. They would have been kids. They would have been under 20. And they would have heard this law. And so that's the generation that's now in charge because the older generation died in the wilderness. Hero Israel is a a reminder of chapter four, which provided them a a reason to listen. And this chapter starts with the word here, hero Israel. Covenant is the one that was made at, at Horeb. That's a reference to Exodus 24. It's really nice in Bible study to just be able to say Exodus 24. And we've got that all on the podcast. And you can just go back and listen to it if you really want to dig back into it. Um, to make a covenant here, the word, the Hebrew word that's being used here is to imply that a covenant gets cut. It's like to cut something into a tree, like you carve your initials when you're out on a date. Um, but it's to cut a covenant uh, sealed with a sacrifice. And of course, when that covenant was made, God put that writing on stone and cut into the stone to make it. But the cut reference with a covenant is usually has to do with the fact that a sacrifice gets made. Abraham, remember, made a sacrifice. He cut the animal, and the blood of the sacrifice is what sealed the covenant. So covenants with God get sealed with blood after a cut, and that language gets used here. Verse 3, it says, but with us. Moses points out that the covenant was with the nation of Israel, not the particular people. So the people that were initially making that covenant have died in the wilderness, and they broke the covenant. 
but he made it with a nation, and Moses is kind of making a real point of that. He made that with you, the people that are still alive, that covenant's alive and well too. So the old generation's gone, and then we have that. We get the face-to-face -face reference again. We've seen that before. An intimate personal con connection that's unhindered. God talked straight directly to the people, no mediator, uh, mediator up front. And the first part of this chapter is going to talk about the fact that people didn't like that. Because if you hear directly from God, there's no defense, right? And when God points out your sin through the law, it's an awfully hard thing to do. Paul says that through the law, he learned that he was a sinner and that he was doomed to death. So the law is not always the happy topic. We won't be making t-shirts about it. Um, but it is a face-to-face -face interaction at the front end. And there's no form to that face, Deuteronomy 4.12, but it's still a personal interaction that they had with God. He reminds them they were afraid and they asked for Moses to be their, their mediator. So the Ten Commandments. Um, one thing before we get into the Ten Commandments, notice here that God doesn't really point out there's no prior demands from God for the Ten Commandments. God starts with declaring who he is. Here I am, verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The first introduction to the law is God saying what he's done and what he's done for us. It's not that he makes a bunch of demands right up front. He actually reminds what he's already done before he gets into the law. So he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage and you shall have no other gods before me. So that's the first commandment. We're going to have five that have to do with personal life or a personal relationship with God. We're going to have five that have to do with our civic life. And there's different ways to break it up, but the commandments are broken into five and five. They're on two tablets even, not one tablet, not five tablets, not ten tablets. Put them on two tablets. Um, so God's redemption of his people is the foundation of the relationship. It's prioritized. Uh, it's not exclusive. It's anybody who wants to be part of Israel. Um, the reference of I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. This is not, and sometimes people confuse this one with the second commandment, this is not about idol worship. This is about worshiping anything other than God and putting things in your life. And things, certain things in our life put us in bondage verse 6, and certain things in life, like the worship of a holy God, actually releases us from bondage. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we go. But the Baals and the Ashtoreth poles that were all around this area were the gods that were the pursuit of everything in our life. For every part of life, there's a Baal or there's an Ashtoreth. Baals generally had to do with wealth, power, and finance. And Ashtoreth generally had to do with romance, sex, and pornography. And those things are what draw the human mind almost immediately, our careers and our romance. And those are the things that tend to drive humans. So basically, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Another point here is that there's no denying that there's other gods to be had. It's a small g God that's used in verse 7, but the Bible doesn't deny that there are other spiritual forces out there. There are things that draw your attention. They are real and they are an option. And God's simply saying, that's not an option for my people. We've made a covenant and I want to be your first God. I want to be the thing that stands in the front. It also doesn't say that you can't have other gods. And I thought that's kind of interesting. And that could be a theological debate when we get done too. But it just says you can't have any other gods before me. I'm your first God. I'm your first pursuit in life. And after you pursue Yahweh, 
you can go ahead and pursue a career and you can pursue romance and you can pursue things, but you start with God so that you do those things in order and in context. But it's not to say that you can't pursue a career and you can't pursue those other things. And I thought that was just an interesting take on verse seven. She'll have no other gods before me. Um, Colossians 3, 5 says you should need to put other things away, put to death the other members which are on the earth fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry, and that's going to be the 10th commandment. So before me, meaning in my face, we've seen that before in past studies too, it's okay to do other, these other things, but don't put them in front of God's face. Don't come to God with your other gods. Don't come to Yahweh with all these other concerns where you're pursuing something else in life other than the kingdom. And God doesn't want those things necessarily put in his face. Another huge theological discussion, right? We're just going to stomp on over those all night tonight. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. As long as God comes first, some of those other things can be added. God knows that we have to work, and he knows that we have to pursue things, and he knows that we have to have some passion around those things that we do. We're not clones and we're not automatons but we put God first before those things. And first isn't even that high on the list. Like tithe is only 10% of our money that God asks for. You know, and we'll get to Sabbath and stuff like that. God asks for so little. He just asks for the first part of things. And the other 90% of our life, we can live as we please, right? Within the law that we're about to hear. God knows we have to do those things. So when we put this world first, we fail to follow the first commandment. The rest of the commandments just don't matter anymore, right? So they're prioritized. They're in order as that these commandments have to come in order. The first thing is you put God first in your life. We run from other stuff, 1 Corinthians 10, 14. We don't hang around with other people that aren't pursuing God, 1 Corinthians 5, 11. And those people don't have an inheritance with God, so we don't put our heart and soul with those people. We don't yoke with unbelievers, right? So those kinds of things are part of how we just organize our lives. We get things in order. Mark 12, 30 Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. So when Jesus says that's the first commandment, he's summing up what we just read. I, here, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And that's Jesus' commentary on this particular commandment. right? So commandment number two is close, but it's different. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, or that's in earth beneath, or that's in the water under the earth. Verse 9, you shall not bow to them nor serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so I don't have much on this, but just a couple points. We don't make a lot of carved images in the United States of America, really, because of this. And because we're a Judeo-Christian culture, we never really got into that. But there are denominations, the Catholics, that make a lot of carved images. And in fact, in the Catholic Church, they, uh, they remove this. And they, so if you read a, in the Catholic Decalogue, this commandment's been removed because they don't want confusion for Catholics. Um, and then they split verse the 10th commandment, they split it into two, so they still have 10 commandments, which is just kind of cute. It's nice that they would do that, but probably not a good idea to go translating or taking things out of the word of God like that. So most of the time we don't, we don't, a lot of us don't struggle with worshiping little images in our home. 
um, until you'll tell stuff that maybe we don't need a Christmas tree this year and then try to have that discussion because we do, there are things that we like, but we don't worship them. You know what I'm saying? So it's not, I don't want to get too far into this kind of thing. Paul argues that idols are made by men are just a reduction of true worship. That when we worship things, we're not worshiping anything that's real or anything that can give back to us. Romans 1. What's interesting for me on this one is God saying he's a jealous God. That doesn't mean that God has needs. There's two kinds of jealousy. There's jealousy where I'm insecure. And there's jealousy that I think is God-like jealousy where he believes that he's worthy of your worship. And he's actually asking for it because we're in a covenant. So the kind of jealousy that you have when you make a deal with someone and that you expect them to hold up their end of the bargain. Well, yes, we made a deal. I'm jealous that you would keep your end of the deal up. And I don't want other things to come in front of that. So there's jealousy that comes out of love. No, Steph cannot go on dates with other guys. I'm not okay with that because I'm jealous. It's not my insecurity, but it's because we made a covenant and I expect her to keep her end of the covenant. So that's the kind of, this isn't like a needy, desperate God. This is a God that has a love for people that he made a covenant with and he expects them to keep up their covenant. So visiting iniquity on the fathers upon the children, that's an interesting passage. So we need a little clarity. God visits, the word in the Hebrew means to attend to or numbers or sees. So it's really kind of an odd word when they, in verse nine, where it says visiting the iniquity of the fathers. It has a stronger implication in the Hebrew that God simply watches it happen. So when you have people that worship other things in the home, it tends to be the kids don't then go and turn around and serve God. And what happens is generationally, when you have parents that are serving evil, you have kids that either are broken by that and have to go find God somewhere else, or you have kids that don't care anything about God at all because their parents are so messed up. Why should they care about that stuff? Does that make sense? So the, God watches that happen. And when you have people that do idol worship or they worship the car in their garage or other things that we can worship are, you know, appliances in the kitchen. Um, those kinds of things can be things that really have an effect on the next generation too. Because kids see that the faith that you have in God just isn't that real. You really care more about your baseball card collection than you care about the living God, right? And that sort of thing tends to be something. Kids see hypocrisy very clearly in their parents. Mercy to thousands is the flip side of that. God actually then it implies that this is part of a national culture. When you have a culture that starts to worship things versus the creator, they worship the created things, then you have a whole kind of group of people that start to go in this, the generations of people plus masses of people. So father to son, mother to daughter, and then thousands of people, God visits mercy upon them. So you just have this idea that idol worship can be something that affects an entire country. Commandment three, I'll summarize commandment three as you don't fake this, right? You shall take the name, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Often this particular commandment means don't use the word Jesus in your swearing or don't say, oh God. And the Christian community in America has kind of reduced this commandment to don't swear using God's name. Probably not a good idea. So that's not a bad thing, but it's really the easiest version of this. Uh, Jewish people actually took it another extent. They said you can't even write the name of the Lord, right? So they don't even write it out because of this commandment. Uh, I think that's dangerous when you reduce this commandment to that little of a thing. Like when people swear, that's probably not good. It shows that you don't have a lot of regard or respect for somebody. But this is a big deal because it says the Lord will not hold them guiltless who takes the name in vain. 
And to take the name, we need to understand that. Take the name in the Hebrew is Nasa Shem. It means to lift something up, to bear it is Nasa. And Shem means to take a name or reputation or a mark of memorial. So don't pick up the banner of the Lord and write his name on your head if you're not going to do what he says for you to do. Don't call yourself a Christian and act like something else. That's taking up the Lord's banner, lifting it up and carrying it with you and putting it out in front so that other people can see you. The word vain is a really interesting word. In the Hebrew, it's shav. It means it's not to look in a mirror and think how beautiful you are like the queen in Snow White. Vanity is translated literally emptiness, falsehood, to be useless, or to put something, to put ourselves up with nothing behind it. Vanity. And the root of vanity, if we go back to Old English and understand it, then when he says, don't take the Lord of your God's name in vain, that means something else than just swearing using Jesus in our swear words. It has to do with how you live your life and what you call yourself when you deal with other people and then how you live and act towards other people. So bearing up God's name, if it doesn't mean anything to you, it's actually a sin to do that. And this is a crazy thing for me because we all know people like this that call themselves Christians, but they pretty much just live for themselves. And there's nothing different about their life. You wouldn't know they were a Christian unless you asked them. There's nothing that looks different about their life than what the rest of the world has. And it becomes this kind of vain, empty title that they've given themselves. James 1.22, just to bring the conviction home. (laughs) This is one of my favorite verses. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Vanity. Mark, Matthew 15, 8 and 9. These people draw near me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vanity, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They worship me in vain, in emptiness. And God doesn't hear people that do that. This is a really dangerous thing. Like your eternal salvation is based on commandment three, right? You can't fake it. And when Matthew brings it home, Jesus talking in Matthew, there's this idea that it has something to do with our hearts. And the Ten Commandments have to do with how we we do things. So we need to be very careful. Another way to do vanity is when we say to other people that God told me to do something. And I hear that a lot in the church, and it always makes me just a little hesitant. Because who am I to say God hasn't talked to somebody? So maybe God has talked to you. Great. Maybe God's moving through you in a really powerful way. That's grand. How can I help? What can I do? But when people use that to try to get what they want, well, God talked to me, therefore you need to do this. You're using the Lord's name as your banner and you're using it with emptiness and vanity. And you're using it to basically promote yourself. And if we've established that God's awesome and we're not, and we're okay with that worldview, then that's kind of substituting God for yourself where commandment two was to substitute God with idols. Does that make sense? So this is kind of, we can we, not only can we not do idols and put them up on a pedestal, we can't take ourselves and put ourselves up on a pedestal either. We can't use the Lord's name in vain or in emptiness. We have to use it because we actually have a relationship with the Lord. We have to be really careful when we say, I'll follow you, Lord. I'll make a commitment to you. And then we turn around and we don't do it. That that's actually a form of guilt. Again, I'll read it again. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
So this is one of those kinds of things. And I think Christians are generally pretty careful about that when they do altar calls and stuff. And they say, you know, don't make this commitment lightly. Take it seriously, what you're going to do. Make it a, a big deal. And this isn't about struggling with dealing with sin in your life. This is about if you're going to make a commitment to the Lord, it better be something that's real in your heart. Don't fake this. Commandment number four gets even more convicting. Like I said, there's not a lot of humor tonight. Observe the Sabbath to keep it holy as the Lord God commanded you. I just love thee because I said so. There's no rationale to Sabbath other than because I said so. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your ox nor your donkey nor any of your cattle nor your stranger who's within your gates. Poor strangers come after the cattle. Your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember... You were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. It's not an option to keep the Sabbath day. It's not something we wait for governors to tell us to do or not to. It is a commandment to keep the Sabbath day. What that looks like is the question, right? What does the Sabbath day look like? So there's a core essential value here to human life. I love this. God comes first. No idols take his place. Don't take his name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. And it's so simple, yet it's so hard. But look at the essential value. That whole list of strangers, cattle, everything. Basically, God's just saying everybody has the basic dignity and human right to not be put into slave labor seven days a week. Everybody does. Remember, Israel, I took you out of slavery and I gave you one day a week off. So nobody controls seven days of your week. All of us, most of us have jobs. Some of us are self-employed. But most of us have jobs where somebody tells us what to do. And there is a line that those people often like to cross because they want seven days of your life. They don't just want five. And that often gets in the form of like emails on Sunday and things that ooze into there. And God's basically saying you have a right to not be a slave seven days a week. Take that right and keep that Sabbath. Keep it holy and don't pursue all those other things. So there's six days. I'm going to say this too for folks that may need to hear it. God models for us that we get a day of week off, but he also models for us that we need to work six days a week. Now, when we live in a culture that says you only work five days a week, that can be a struggle on the other side too. But that's the balance God wired us for. Six days of production, one day of holiness and devotion to God. And that doesn't mean laying in a bed all day. That's not what Sabbath is, right? So keeping it holy is a phrase that's simple. It's an inception, but it has to do with taking a day of the week. And the holy things that are listed through Leviticus are reading the word of God, praise, fellowship, and prayer. Take a day and just hang out with people you love. That's a good thing to do. And it's kind of fun to do that. So as a command, this takes workaholics and makes them feel a little guilty because they need to give up their idol of work and prioritize God one day a week. Work can't substitute God either. And for slothful people, it says you actually need to be doing something productive six days a week. Like time to move on and put some of those idle things away and put some force into it. Work in this is, so that's another thing. What does work imply? And, and what does it mean to work and not work? There's a whole book on it by Soul and Cloys called To Work and to Love. It's a great book. I like it. But malaka is the, the Hebrew word. It means occupation, business, or dealing with your properties. So this is something the rabbis had a lot of trouble with. They started defining work by what you did with your physical motions. 
But the implication here in Malacca isn't like that making a line in the dirt was considered one of the broken rabbinical rules. Like you couldn't, you couldn't take a stick and move the dirt because that was like akin to planting a seed. So it was like sowing crops. Even if you're just doodling the dirt with a stick, it was considered work. But they're taking a literal minor perception of it. The root word malaka has to do with anything that adds to your occupation or your property. So if it's whatever you do for a living, that's your work. So that living thing needs to just get out of one of the seven days of the week. Um, but it gets turned into hundreds of rules by Jewish priests. These are hilarious. Maybe there is some humor in the Ten Commandments. Um, you can't walk, for, for hardcore Jewish people, you can't walk more than 1,999 paces in a, in a day on Sabbath. Which is ridiculous because it doesn't say that here. So some of these rules and say, wow, you can't follow all that Old Testament stuff. Most of that comes down to like, no, that's not Old Testament stuff. It's actually just weird rabbinical rules that got added to take a day off every week, right? So here's another one. You can't pick ahead of grain because that's reaping, right? And that's not how you make, you don't make your living by picking ahead of grain off a thing of grass. You make a living by reaping an entire field, right? So when Jesus and his disciples took a thing, broke it off and started to eat, the rabbis went crazy over that. You're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus knew better because he'd actually read the book. And he's like, I'm not going to take your words for it because I'm not only am I not enslaved to my boss, I'm not enslaved to you rabbis either, right? Because God took us out of slavery. So we don't owe that to any human on the earth. You can't set a broken bone on the Sabbath for rabbis, which is because that's how doctors make their living. Well, so you can't do that. And Jesus defied that too. And he started healing people on the Sabbath. And he's like, is it good to do good on the Sabbath or bad on the Sabbath? Because he'd actually read it and he knows it. You can't tie knots on the Sabbath. So to pull water up from the well, you'd have lots of Jewish women because girdles didn't count as knots. So they would take their girdle and tie it to the bucket to pull water up from wells. And some like hardcore Jewish people still do this kind of stuff. So the healing things in Luke 13, verse 14. These aren't God's laws. All that ridiculous stuff is not coming from God at all. It's coming from a Judaistic tradition. And those traditions are what humans do. So in Exodus 20, uh, it doesn't have the remember you are not a slave. That's something Moses is adding on the retelling of it, probably because that came up as how he explained this to people. So we get a little glimpse of his teaching. Um, Jesus, of course, summarizes this and gives comment on this, this particular passage. Mark 2, 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You're not slaves to anyone, you're slaves to God. He comes first, commandment number one. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, we submit to Christ, we enter his rest. Hebrews 4 explains all that. We bow to him and Christ then becomes the person we're a bondservant to. Paul introduced himself that way in most of the epistles. I'm a bondservant of Christ. I'm a slave to God. That also implies that I'm not a slave to any other person on this earth. And that tends to tick people off when they think they own you. And you're like, you don't own me, honey. So I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can love me for that and we can be on the same terms, but I put him first and you second. And for some people that just drive, there's an insecurity there that just drives people nuts. When you put God first and you say, this is something I feel like God's calling me to do. Anyways, just an idea that Sabbath really puts the rubber to the road of the first three commandments. If God comes first and you don't have other idols and you're not putting your own vanity in the front of your life, 
then you suddenly have this thing God's commanded you to do, keep the Sabbath. And that becomes really hard to do because you're like, well, it isn't even a big deal. And God doesn't say it's a big deal. He just says, I said so. Keep the commandment because I said so. All right, so now I want to get into some math. Planning for God on the Sabbath. Where do we draw the line and how do we actually do this? So for if there's anyone in the room that still needs help with this idea, because you're all here on a Sunday night doing Bible study, so you kind of get Sabbath. But for me, this is really helpful thinking. If we have... 168 hours in a week, that's 24 times 7. Then we have 168 hours. If we sleep for about 8 hours a night, that's 56 hours a week we can just take out of there. If we say get up and take a lot of time getting ready in the morning, that's like an hour in the morning and then getting to bed, like I'll brush my teeth for 30 minutes or so. So let's say we have 2 hours a day of preening, right? Just self-care, hygiene, all that sort of thing. So let's... Take out another 14 hours a week. You with me, hon? Then let's say you have 14 hours on Saturday and you have a 30-hour work week, or you have, uh, I'm sorry, you have a 40-hour work week, eight hours a day, five days a week, six hours a day then, you're kind of just doing entertainment times five. So you work for eight, then you do whatever for six hours in the evening, probably cooking. So then you've got your week filling up. Where was I? So what do you have left after that? So if you've got six hours a night to do whatever you want, times five, that's 30 hours a week with no work involved. If you're working eight-hour days, if you're working 10-hour days, you can shrink that number just a little bit. Or 14-hour days, then you're totally a workaholic. So then you got Saturday with 14 waking hours on a Saturday. So if you take the 30 hours a week of entertainment time plus your 14 hours a week on Saturdays that in America we generally don't work Saturdays, now you've got a grand total of 44 hours a week with nothing to do but entertain yourself. This is a good life in the history of the world. In fact, most people don't see anything like this. So God asks for one day a week of that. God asks for Sabbath. So let's say Sabbath is what? 20 minutes of sermon and maybe 20 minutes of hanging out with people at church and then you go home after an hour but that's not what a sabbath day is so let's say there's 14 hours on a sunday versus your 58 hours of free time per week i don't know but this really helps me i feel like i'm some of you are just rolling your eyes at me right now but how much does god really ask of me in a week maybe go to church on a sunday morning maybe do a bible study on a sunday night four, five, six hours, and I get 58 hours of my own free time to do whatever I want, I can write books in 58 hours a week, right? I can program entire software codes and make mobile games with 40, 50 hours a week. I can literally work a 40-hour-a-week job, have Saturdays with my evening free time, and have two full-time jobs at the same time in that block of time and still have Sundays free. So why does Sundays get to be the day that we always have to make excuses around? Oh, I can't do it this week. I can't do that this week. And God's told you, don't have other idols. Don't put yourself first. All I want is my Sabbath time with you. I just want to see you one day a week. What kind of marriage would we have if we only hung out with our spouse when we felt like it for 20 minutes a week? If we felt like it, but we skipped every other week. Like at some point your spouse might get the clue that you don't really want to be married to them. Right? That's a path for a really bad relationship. What does it look like to have a habitual daily devotional life where we're doing that? So basically, if most Americans are given about one hour a week to a Sabbath, 
That's only 0.59% of our week that most people give. Not a seventh, right? But like 0.59. Maybe you go to church for two hours, that gets you up to 1% of your week. And you think, oh, so see commandment three. So without planning, our flesh always has a reason to skip Sabbath. And I'm not just saying this to like make sure you keep coming to Bible study. I don't know. Do whatever you want on Sabbath. It's your day. You're not a slave to anybody, not even a pastor or a priest or anybody. It's your day to spend time with God. And however you get closer to God, that's what you should be doing on that time. But you have to plan for it because if you don't plan for it, this world without fail will habitually attack that day before anything else because it's what God wants, right? So if there is spiritual warfare going on at all, that's what you want to have to worry about. I'm spending a lot of time on this, but what did the early Christians do? Because Stephai says this is the one commandment that isn't repeated in the New Testament, right? All the other nine commandments, Jesus at some point repeats them all. But Jesus is our Sabbath, so it changes in the New Testament. And the new Christians didn't keep going to synagogue on Saturdays. They, they even changed the day to Sundays because they felt a lot more freedom around Sabbath because that is something that's said. But look at what they kept doing. They kept doing devotions. Like, it didn't mean that they didn't do devotional time. Acts 2.42, they continually steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of the bread and in prayers. They prayed, they ate food, and they read the word together. Not only that, but they did it a lot. They kept up their weekly meetings. They kept meeting all the time. Acts 20, verse 7, and upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached to them, ready to depart, depart on the morrow and continued his speech until midnight. They were hardcore Sundays. They were eight hours of Paul's preaching on a Sunday. They had one dude that was sitting in the window that falls out and dies on the street and God has to, resur or, uh, God has to resurrect him through Paul because he was such a boring teacher, right? This is what the disciples did. They got together and literally studied the Bible for eight, six, seven, nine hours a day on a Sabbath and they hung out together. They broke bread, they prayed together, they read the word together. And that is virtually unheard of today. And I was telling Steph, because I was reading this, it's like, we should just do like a total like, problem is you go to the Dells, you got swimming pools calling out to you and you want to go do pools. We shouldn't do that. We should go to someplace totally boring where all we're going to do is study the word for an entire day straight. Let's do it once in our lives. Disciples were doing it every week, right? And they changed the world. People got saved because they lived a different lifestyle than other people did. See what Sabbath does if you do it right? Let's say you actually give God 14 hours a week of, of that time, right? So on the first day of the week when the disciples came, Paul, I'm not going to teach for seven hours tonight, just so you know that. That's Jordan. So on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached to them, ready to depart on the morrow and continue his speech till midnight. John, 1 John 1, 7. I just love the idea. This is a get to, it's not a have to. And that's the thing. This isn't meant to guilt people into doing Sabbath. Sabbath should be like, no, that's what I want because I know what it does for my soul. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. What a great feeling. Ever notice when you're studying the word, you're not sinning? Like it's that one day a week where you are actually pure and you can kind of set something aside for God and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. So that time together is how Jesus actually works in our life, period. That's what Sabbath is for. It's so that God can generate in us a new kind of heart and a new kind of personality because we hang with other people that love the Lord as much as we do 
or even more, like hang with people that you respect and you want to be more like them, right? So it's about how we admonish each other. It's about how we speak truth to each other. A lot of people don't want to have people, people speak truth to them anymore. Like you're hurting my emotional feelings. It's like, no, I'm not trying to do that at all. I love you. I care about you. And I can see this major thing. But it gives us boldness too because we learn how to talk about God with each other and just love it. It makes it really easy to talk to our family and our other friends and say, no, we love the Lord and this is part of what changes our life and makes us awesome, right? But doesn't the Lord make you hate people? No, it's quite the opposite. I love people. I love all people. And that's what the Lord does for me. He gives me a heart of love for others, right? So that idea of getting together, being bold in our faith, Romans 14, Romans 15, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, Titus 2, Jude 1, keep the Sabbath. It just keeps coming throughout the whole New Testament. It's not something you give up. It just looks different because we don't have to be under a rabbinical system anymore. We don't serve the rabbis, right? So as Christians, we keep that Sabbath with each other because it helps us to regenerate and renew our hearts with each other. It's how God designed us. Commandment five, honor your mom and dad. Verse 16, honor your father and mother as the Lord, the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land that the Lord is giving to you. So be nice to your parents. God establishes a core family structure. Uh, most families at the time stayed together the bulk of their lives. So you would have 70-year-olds living in the household with a 90-year-old patriarch. Um, and some of these families, we've talked about this before, some of the families had matriarchs. So they're under Jewish law, if the female was the head of the home, you respected her will. So even in this one, it's honor your father and your mother. Um, that takes care of either kind of family structure. Younger generations, I think we're designed this way. We think we know better than the older generations. It's just how we're wired. Um, but it's not how, we still have to have some restraint in that, and we honor the older generation how they want to do things. So why do we do this? So that our lives are long. Our parents, like nobody else, wants the best for us. So it usually, typically, in a healthy family, we want to respect what people wish for us who want the best for us and that our life will go long. Matthew 15, 3 through 6, Jesus uses this particular commandment to come back at the rabbis because they accused him of not washing his hands and that was unclean. And Jesus turns it around and he says, yeah, but you guys abandon your parents in nursing homes. And I'm paraphrasing because they had different things. But the rabbinical system in the first century, if I were a rabbi, then I was dedicated to God and that absolved me from this commandment under the rabbinical system. So someone else, my brothers and sisters, would take care of mom and dad, but I didn't have to because I was a rabbi. And that was Jesus' response to the hand-washing thing and said, you know what? It's what comes out of you that's so unclean. It's not what goes on to you that makes you unclean. And he attacks them over it. He says, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You're worried about us washing hands and you got parents that you've abandoned and left destitute because you are too busy for them and you were supposed to take care of them. So this institutes the care of the elderly in a society and a society that forgets and abandons the elderly is a society that's on its way to deconstruction because you take care of people. So then we get to civic law. Number six, you shall not murder. In the Hebrew, that's one word, rasach. Ratsash. The root word means you're dashing someone to pieces. You don't put yourself on top of other people. You don't step on people, right? You don't murder. To murder is used here. Other, it's not muth. Muth is to kill under a legal system. 
or under self-defense or under sacrifice. That's muth, to kill something and end life. Rasash is to take life in all its forms without cause and for selfishness and without justification. Rasash. Jesus, of course, I'm just going to come right to Matthew 5 on this one. In fact, Matthew 5 has a lot of the different commandments with Jesus's commentary on it. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said by them of old time that you shall not kill and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, Jesus is saying this, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to their brother Raka, which is like a naughty name, shall be in danger of counsel. But whoever shall say you fool, which is a not so naughty name, shall be in danger of hellfire. When you think someone else is lower than you, you have dissembled them. You have rasached. You've killed them. You've made them less than the image of God than you are. And, you know, again, go back to commandment three. Don't take up the Lord's name in vain. So verse uh, the, the seven, you shall not commit adultery. Again, it's a primitive root, na'af, in all of its forms. It's one word. So these commandments are like one word commandments. Rasash, don't kill. Uh, na'af, don't commit adultery. Uh, Matthew 5 again, Jesus says just looking at another woman in lust is, is committing adultery. So it's not the act, it's what's in the heart. And Jesus teaches that throughout his ministry, that it's not the act of something, it's what goes on in your heart that makes you sick and in need of a doctor. Uh, you shall not steal, verse, nine, verse 19, commandment 8, ganab, or gonab things. You shall not steal. Personal property is a thing. Uh, it doesn't matter what kind of thing you're taking. So it's the opposite of industry. Let him who stole, Ephesians 4.28, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to whom is in need. So instead of taking things, you should work a little harder and give things away. So the New Testament just takes each of these and ramps it up like a whole new level, right? Because you can say, oh, I don't steal things. And, you know, and, and then in Ephesians says, well, it's more than just not stealing. Maybe you should give things away. And just not let that be your God. Verse 20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Again, ana, one basic, one word, uh, you shall not bear false witness. Uh, ana means, it, it doesn't mean to speak. It actually means to sing or to eye something or heed something or give attention to something, an account to bring low or to cry about something. <laughs> You shall not give attention to things that are false. Empty vanity is a false thing too. There's no act here in, in the last or in the ninth commandment. There isn't an actual act. Um, it's the not doing of something that can be there too. So it can be bad or good. Let me explain. To bear false witness or present a false witness in the positive is to knowingly say something that's untrue. That would be bad intent. That's called lying. That's a false witness. But you can do this differently too. I can unknowingly do damage, but I have good intentions in doing it because I said something false. That would be called gossip. Most gossips think they're doing good for the world, but they're saying something that they don't know to be true, but they're doing it with good intent. But that's bearing false witness too. You can also not do things or omit things and knowingly not say something even though you know bad is happening in the world. So you can exaggerate or omit things and let your words be false. 
Like this is the big root word for false witness. It includes all of this. Staying silent when you know something is being said that's untrue and people could be hurt by that can often be good intent. Like I don't want to say something because they're going to get offended. But that's bearing false witness too. And that doesn't mean be rude and impolite. There's other stuff that explains that. You need to be gracious and kind, and you shouldn't tell anybody how to live their life unless they're maybe asking for your wisdom and advice. If they're not asking, you probably shouldn't butt your nose in. But if you're in a situation where someone's being lied about in the lunchroom and you don't speak up in their defense, that silence or omission is included in bearing false witness because you're carrying something forward. You're giving eye or heed or attention to something that isn't truth. And that's a really dangerous plot. But think of what this does for an entire society if everybody obeys this. Nobody lies. Nobody gossips. Nobody does tailbearing where they share stories with other people that aren't true. Like if Grant got his new bus driving gig and I blurted that out and said it, that's a false witness because I wasn't there. It's not my story to tell. It's Grant's story to tell. So unless, of course, Katie says, no, I want you to tell the story. Right? But she's right there. If I say something wrong, she can fix it. But everything that ever came out of our mouths as a whole community was always just truth. Well, you wouldn't have to worry about what people thought about you anymore. You wouldn't have all this deception going on. You wouldn't have guile. Politics would be totally different. Right? It'd be a whole different thing. That there's a kindness and a graciousness to just being a person of truth. But it, you know, at some point, then you have to worry about who you serve or who you're under. If you serve God, then you speak God's word through your mouth as much as you can. If you serve yourself, you're putting your word through your mouth and that's false, it's empty, it's vanity. Right, does that make sense? This is a really tricky one of the commandments. So, which of the 10 commandments was the sin that killed Jesus Christ? It was commandment number nine, it was false witness. So that's the thing that actually killed our savior. So. Uh, the reason for why we say what we do can be a lot of different things. It can be that we're scared to say something. It's that we have jealousy, that we're selfish. We're trying to puff ourselves up with ego. Any of those reasons for saying what we say, all of it is included in the root word that we're talking about for this thing. Bear truth out of your mouth, right? Stick to your own experience is generally a good rule. If you've seen it and you've witnessed it, then you can tell that story. You can be that tale bearer because you were there and you saw it for yourself. Tell your own stories and speak from the first person. Here's what I know, here's what I've seen. And when we carry other people's stories, we're in danger of bearing a false witness because we weren't there and we didn't see it. So-and-so said this and this and this. Well, I didn't hear him say that. So I don't really wanna have anything to do with this conversation. And that's tough to do, but it happens just all the time. And then we get to the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife no matter how good of a cook she is or how awesome she is, or how cute she is. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Uh, the only commandment here that resides in the heart, it has nothing to do with action whatsoever. It just has to do with the heart, 100%. And it's the only one of the, the, the 10 commandments that I can't actually do. I have to feel it or I have to think it. Um, to covet is kamad, to desire or to take pleasure in or to delight in something with, and it has the implication of a great force or a power. It's what keeps you up at night. It's what you think about, right? To love something greatly. 
The first use of the word kamad in the Bible was Genesis 3.6. Eve, before she ever bit the apple, she kamad the apple. She desired it and she moved towards it. And when she moved towards it, then she took it. And after she took it, she took a bite of it. But it all started with kamad, coveting, to want something or desire something greatly that you know you shouldn't have. So it puts an order or a boundary around our life that keeps us in kind of a, a place where we have some things we have to do that. The sin here is desire, not the eating of the apple. It was the desire of the apple that was the original sin. So wanting something for yourself that you shouldn't have it. I think that people always want what they can't have. And all you got to do if you want to just drive a toddler crazy is tell them what they can't have. They could be something they don't care anything about it, but you just say, you can't have that shoe. And that's all the toddler can think about because humans are just wired that way. We want the stuff we can't have. So to want something greatly when God has commanded it no is the opposite of contentment. So a lot of times this commandment gets repeated throughout the Bible in the form of contentment. Be content with what God's given you. See commandment number one. Have the Lord your God be your God before things. If God's your God and you're satisfied with that, you should be content with what you've been given. So the other thing is humans tend to pine for things that are a notch above what they have. And I think that's something that comes from a place of insecurity. So if I want something more than what I have, like you don't see a lot of like ugly husbands being coveted by women, right? It just doesn't happen that way. Or you don't have an old beater car that other people covet, covet or want. It just doesn't work that way. We tend to want things we don't have or that are outside of what God has allotted for us to have. And one way that we deal with this don't covet thing, I think, is that we repeat to ourselves what we're content with, right? And I think that's one of those things where there'll be a billboard of some beautiful woman and I'm like kind of turning my eyes this way going, I'm content with my wife. She's awesome. I have everything I need with my wife. I remember a guy who I really respected. He was, he's like that too. His wife was, when they first got married, was kind of worried about her self-image and stuff. And he just told her and he said, honey, you got everything I need. You got the whole package that makes me happy. And that mantra, I think, I'm sure it works that way with girls too, but I can only speak from a guy's perspective, see commandment nine. That idea of just saying, man, I got everything I need. It makes it so that you can be content with what you have and keep God at the front of your life, right? So let my eyes be for what I have, not for what I don't have. Let me be grateful for what God's put in my life, not for what is outside the door of my life. God's provision feeds it all. And we're supposed to take heed with this, Luke 12, 15. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things you possess. Your life and your value does not come from what you have, period. How do we be content? How can, the, how can we do that in an effective way? Contentment is how poor people get to be rich. Coveting is how rich people become poor. And it's all in your heart. And it's all in how you think about things and what you have. And that doesn't mean you don't pursue things and buy things. It's that you keep God at the front of your life. And if you don't have things right now, you're fine with that. I remember teaching. I think you guys were there. And I was teaching. I used the example of the hot tub. Like my whole life, I've been like, man, it'd be nice to have a hot tub. And I used this example when I was teaching at a church. And after the sermon, an awesome young lady comes up and she goes, you know, my husband and I, we got a hot tub we're not using. If you want it, you can just have it. And I'm like, that, that wasn't my point. It's just something like my whole life that I've been like, man, that'd be kind of cool. And 
but I'm content with what I have. But I, I just thought it was sweet. It was really sweet of her. You remember Jessica. And it was just really a sweet thing. She's like, you know what? You can have that thing that you want. And I'd be like, Lord, that's so great. Thanks for even giving me that. I remember when we were broke, when we first got married, we had to like budget our groceries. And we got to the checkout line and we had, we, we didn't have enough money. So we started saying, okay, what's not essential? And what was not essential was my Welsh's grape jelly jar. And that we had to put, you know, it's kind of humbling when you have to take groceries and go put them back on the shelf or whatever. And it was just something where I was sad and I was going home and I'm like, man, we're so broke and I can't even get my grape jelly and that makes me really sad. And then we went from the grocery store and I kind of just gave it to the Lord. Lord, help me have a content heart. Help my eyes to be on what I have, not on what I don't. And today I don't have Welsh's grape jelly. So let me just keep my eyes fixed on butter, you know, because at least I got that for my toast still. And I can live without the jelly for a couple weeks or whatever. But we stop at a friend's house. He had just finished with college, so he's moving back to Washington. And he goes, he was giving me a piece of art that he had done in art class. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. The art has since been lost. Um, but I really like the art piece. And, and he goes, oh, and hey, we're moving, so we can't take anything with us. So whatever you want in the cupboards, you can have. And I open up the cupboards door, and dead center, right in front of my eyeballs, was a super-sized jar of unopened Welsh's grape jelly. And I started crying. And my friend just thought I was like, had really lost my masculinity there for a second. And I'm just like, you don't even know how my spirit was cast down because I wasn't content with what I had. And the Lord's just telling me something right now saying, I got you. I even got your stinking grape jelly that you want. So if God, if you love God and he's at the top of your life, then he gives you what you need. And you have what you need to be content because he doesn't let his people go. So I was reading in Matthew last night and the whole story about Jesus is like, look at the birds of the field. Look at how well they're dressed. And they're not even as well-dressed as Solomon in all his riches and splendors. And if God takes care of little birdies like that, he's going to take care of you too. Stop worrying about stuff. So the people are afraid of all this. These Ten Commandments kind of hit pretty hard. They hit close to home. There should be something in there for everyone to feel convicted about, right? So they're, they're, they're equal treatment under the law. And it comes down to this heart thing. Verse 22, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud and the, th the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Two is the number of witness. We had two spies that went into the land. We have two leaders in Moses and Aaron. We have two people at the transfiguration. At the end of days, there will be two witnesses standing in Israel. Two is the number of witness. And there are two tablets of the law because the law bears witness to the heart of humanity and what we do and what we don't do well. It shows us our own sickness of sin. And that's what the law does. It bears witness against us. This is what God says is holy. And here's the places where we've broken all these laws. When we did this back in Exodus 20, like the whole point was like, aren't you guilty of something on this list? Or maybe you're guilty of all 10 of these things on this list. And that should drive us to a reaction. Moses says, God spoke all this to you directly. People want to add rules to these so that we can follow the little rules and meet the big commandment. And that's what the Jewish people do. They add hundreds of rules to the Ten Commandments. And Moses is going to go through and teach all this, but his main point is he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And I like that prepositional phrase there. He added no more. He talked with God for a long time. God didn't add anything to this list. 
So they ask, this guy comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I do to be saved? Jesus says, follow the commandments. That's what you got to do. He goes, yeah, 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 but what do I really got to do to be saved? And he's like, sell everything you got and give it all to the poor. Because Jesus knew his heart and he knew that commandment 10 is the thing he just couldn't do. Right? So he points him to commandment 10 and the guy just goes away sad. Hard-hearted, sad-hearted. So it was. When you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and elders, and you said, surely the Lord has shown us his glory. <clears throat> glory there in the Hebrew is kavud. It means weight. Surely God has shown us his weight, how heavy this burden is, with his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We've seen this day that God speaks with man and yet still lives. Now, therefore, why should we die? That's an interesting turn right there, right? We've seen that God speaks and we live, but why should we die for this great fire will consume us? The weight of God's law is very heavy on people. There's good news at the other end of it, but right now let's let that just sit on us a little bit. The guilt that we have under the law is not a good thing, right? So they're like, if we hear the voice of the Lord of our God anymore, then we will die for who is there of all flesh who's heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? You go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you and we will hear it. The people ask Moses to be the mediator. And he's reminding them of this. This is history now. So where God's word is true in the flesh, people, a lot of people don't want to hear it. So it's interesting because Steph will say, man, it'd be really cool to live in this town because they got this church there. And it's usually one of those big, huge, awesome churches with a great, huge, awesome speaker. But you think of it and you think, okay, so that church has 10,000 people. Isn't that metro area like 2 million or 3 million people? Think of the percentage of people that actually want to hear God's word every week versus the people that are just living their lives not hearing it at all. And you think, holy moly. Like it used to be a little steeple in every town and virtually the whole community would show up to church every week. We live in a different culture than that. We live in a post-Christian society. The vast majority of people do not listen to God's word on a weekly basis because the weight of it is horrible. The weight of it says we need to do something because we're in desperate need of a savior. And in the flesh, we're like, I don't want to hear that. I'm good. I'm just going to work on my cars, play some golf and hang out in my hot tub. And I'm good. I don't need anything else. I don't need the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that's really tough. It takes a unique person to have a soft heart to say, actually, the hot tub and the golf course and this, that stuff is the chains. And the freedom actually comes when you get forgiven under the law. But you got to know the law first. The truth has to start before the grace can kick in. So then we get awakened to sin. There's two reasons I think people don't want to hear the law at all. This is why people don't like Deuteronomy. Reason number one comes straight from the Lord of the Rings. It burns us. And that's how Gollum responds when he, when anything good happens or is nice. He tries to eat the elven bread and it burns us. He doesn't like the touch of it. When we see what holiness is, it actually kind of burns and it hurts. And that's what the people of Israel said. Who else can hear God out of the fire? This is hot stuff. And it kind of is convicting. So, the claim of the world is that these laws or these rules are limiting in some way, shape, or form. You all know my opinion on that. It's not limiting to have a fence around your yard. It actually gives your kids an area that they can play with total freedom because they don't have to question where it is. 
Um, think of in any other area of life, the difference of choosing life between choosing boundaries. Boundaries, I think a lot of people like to talk about boundaries as like a restriction of freedom, but it actually works quite the opposite. I can do things and humanity does this. We are on our way to hell because of how we act and how we think and what we do. So without these boundaries or constraints to put a fence around what we do, we'll do, ev we'll do this joyful stuff without constraints all the way to our doom. Imagine bungee jumping without the bungee cord. Imagine going to jump out of an airplane and saying, I don't want the restrictions of a parachute on my body. I just want to be free. Well, that's not freedom. That's a plummet to death that you're taking. So imagine going in a car with a gas pedal and not having brakes, right? So until the, if we need to know how to live life from Moses the teacher, we have to understand how this works. Parachuting needs a mediator in order for the freedom of parachuting to actually happen. There has to be some sort of check to that, right? So life is something that has an end game of death. We all have death at the other end. We want to have some sort of limits around how we do that. Reason number two people don't want to hear the word is because if this is true, then we have a reasonable service to God if we want to be holy. We actually have to do what it says. Maybe we like some of the sin that we live in. There's pieces of sin that we actually want to keep in our life because we want to beat ourselves up with it or we want to titillate ourselves with it. So God at Sinai says, you're not holy. And then God at Jesus at the cross says, but here's a path to salvation. But the path to salvation doesn't make any sense if you don't know that you're not holy, right? And some people struggle with that and some people don't. Like some people hear the, the message of salvation, like I don't struggle with the idea that I'm not holy. I know what's inside there. It's garbage. So Lord, if you can take whatever's in my heart and make it better, let's start right now. I'm, I'm game. Let's do it today. But a lot of people really wrestle with that idea because they look inside and they think, I'm a pretty good person. There's nothing I need to fix. And they're not in the words, so they don't have that burning them, reason number one. So they get a mediator. They get Moses first, then they get Joshua, and there becomes a line of mediators, which get called prophets, that are going to stand between God and the people of Israel from here all the way up until a final prophet named Jesus who stands between the people of Israel and there. And Jesus, our current mediator, says, come and be holy, and he speaks truth and grace together, and the law just speaks the truth. So the law is kind of cold and hard in that respect. And then there's grace. and then, But then we get grace even in the Old Testament, verse 28. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I've heard the voice of the words of the people, and they've spoken to you. They're right in all that they've spoken. So God actually says, no, the people are right. There needs to be a mediator here. The law by itself will burn these people up. So we're going to put that through a mediator. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and their Israel. Hear this in verse 29, you hear this voice of God is almost wistful. Ah, I wish people just got it, but they don't. So, but they're right. They get it. The heart of fear comes from the truth that we sin. So when it says fear God, it's to know that we're sinners and under the law, we're going to burn. And we're going to be cast out away from God in that sense. So God's holy and holiness doesn't meet with sin. The right response to that is to fear God and keep his commandments and pray for mercy. And that's a good thing to do. So it's not like fear is in hide in a closet from God. It's fear is in, okay, then do the right thing. Because if you think God is that powerful, then you should act accordingly. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me. I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, 
which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. God moves on with the best interests of the people. And he sets up this office of prophet and he gives them those words. So the words in his mouth here, this whole follow-up from God's story is not in Exodus 20. This is added and unique to Deuteronomy 6 or Deuteronomy 5. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but as for you, stand here by me. Therefore you shall be careful to do, verse 32, therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. So Moses concludes with the same message that he gave back in chapter 3, which is a bookend, right? He's got the exact same message on either side. Do these things so that it can go well with you and you can have a long, a long life. If you attempt to follow the Ten Commandments, your life will be better than if you don't. And it's just that simple. So, for me at least, when it says, you shall be careful, you shall take care, in verse 32, should be careful doesn't mean that we always succeed. It means that we try to take care with it. We try to do the best we can do with these things. And I think that phrasing right there for me is really helpful because sometimes the accusation in the Old Testament is it's so harsh. And I don't see a lot of harshness there. I see the message through the mediator of Moses saying, be careful to do what God's asked you to do. Try. Make an effort at it so that it goes well with you. Luke 6:42. How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get that speck out of your eye when you can't see past the log in your own? You hypocrite. This is Jesus talking which is a little harsher than we expect Jesus to be. You hypocrite. Get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you can see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. It doesn't say don't help your friend. It says, why don't you help yourself first and take care, be careful with your own life and your own heart before you tell anybody else what to do. So the goal here with the Ten Commandments is not to be little judges running around accusing people of things. And this is what the Pharisees did because people like to do that. If I can run around and tell you how sinful you are, it makes me feel better about myself. But it really expresses a deep insecurity in that person. Why would I need to go tell other people how to be holy when it says right here how to be holy? So you shall walk in that way. I just love that phrasing. Uh, be careful to do as the Lord's commanded to you, not to turn to the left or the right. Verse 33, you shall walk in all the ways of the Lord. That implies that this is about having a journey. Remember it said you've sat on the mountain too long, it's time to get up and take your journey. This is about a lifetime thing. It's about getting up in the morning, doing your devotions, taking care of Sabbath, doing your monthly festivals, having get-togethers with your friends and families, doing Friendsgiving. Things like that are really important because that's life. And it's a walk that we take. It's not a one-time thing that we do. So that may be well with your soul. The word well there in the Hebrew is tov. If this is the end goal, I want to know what that word means. What does well mean? Does it mean that I get my hot tub or not? Right? But tov means fulfillment. It means blessings. The goal of putting the parachute on is so that you don't die when you hit the ground. The goal of the Ten Commandments is that you don't die midway through your life or even at the end of your life. It's that it goes well with you and instead of death, you have fulfillment or blessing and that your heart is full, you're content, commandment number 10. So you have to ask, what does wellness mean? It generally has to do with what is your heart pining for? What do you need more of desperately? And you either need more of something in the world, like those chocolates over there that have been staring at me all night, 
or you need a better car, or you need a uh, new set of clothing, or you need a brand new t-shirt from allingospel.com, right? It's those things are things of the world. They're not going to make you fulfilled at the end of the day. They'll make you happy for a temporary period of time. Like getting the new Star Wars toy, which I've talked about before. It makes you happy for a little bit of time, and then it's just another toy in your closet. At some point, what makes you well, tove, what gives you tove, is not held out and distant and somewhere else. And tove is not something that you get that's temporary. Tove is a state of being that you are well with all of your days. You're fulfilled with everything you have. God's path leads to tove. It leads to well. And the human path just leads to more chains and more burdens. Because we just keep putting them on ourselves. I got to do this. I have to do that. So every morning we wake up, we get a choice. We get to choose who we serve every single day. Joshua took these lessons. And in the book of Joshua, I love it. He's like, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. That's the answer. You wake up in the morning, you got a choice to make every single day. God's law or your own path. If you pick your own path, it's just going to lead to more burdens, change, stress, anxiety, all sorts of things. If you pick God's path, you're well and content because that's the end result of it. So I think that's what Moses is trying to say there. Why do we do all this stuff? Because God's weight should result in us trying to attempt to be holy to take care with our lives. Hebrews 12.1, strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. That's the goal. It's super easy, but we keep fighting with it on a day-to-day basis. That's the walk and that's the journey. It's not a one-time thing at a a magical evening where the worship leaders have done an altar call. It's a lifetime daily choice, daily journey every single day. Amen? Amen. All right. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your gifts. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your law, Lord, for giving us the boundaries that we don't have to wonder or doubt or guess as to what holiness looks like. We just have to try to do it. Um, So Lord, help us to Throw off everything that weighs us down. Let us, Lord, not be people of excuses, but people who do your word, not to just hear it, but to do it. And Lord, I just pray that you bless us in doing that. We on our own strength don't have it. We need you to do it. We need your Holy Spirit to work on our hearts. We need you to humble us to your will and your law. And Lord, give us a joy for it. This shouldn't be a burden because your yoke is, is easy and your burden is light. So, Lord, help us to take up what you've asked us to do, not out of some sort of ritualistic, legalistic, rabbinical torture cell. But, Lord, we pick it up because there's just a total joy in it. It's amazing to walk with you. You give us tov, Lord, and you fill us up and you fill our hearts. So, Lord, I just ask that for each person here, each person that's listening, Lord, that that you bless them, that you give them tov, that they can be well with you and that they can recognize that as a precious value worth more than anything else this world has to offer. And the world doesn't have much to offer, Lord. So help us to see that with clear eyes. And help us to do that, Lord, before we tell anybody else how to live. The goal of the law is for us to be careful. It's not for us to point fingers or to attack or assault other people, Lord. Help us to just choose holiness so that we can be a light. And Lord, help us to do that with just grace and love and peace. Help it to be easy. Help our burdens to be light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. 
screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media. 